The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Um, super thankful to be with you on this Easter Sunday. He is risen. Amen. Amen. Uh, it's, a, it's a, such a treat to, to be in this room. Um, it's cool when we get to do things like we work together and stuff like that, but I, I hope and pray for us that every time we come into this room, we would be reminded of renewal. That God is always renewing us. You know, with this room, in this space, it sort of has a stopping point. You renew it to a certain point, and then it's kind of good enough. We're already good enough in Jesus, and that's why he continues to renew us, and we can trust him to do that work in and through us. And so, I'm just super grateful for this space. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me this morning as we get ready to hear from God? Holy Spirit, I ask now that you would free us up to hear the good news that Jesus is alive, that you're not in the grave. And because of that, Holy Spirit, you now live in us. Would we remember again the power of the resurrection? that it is our hope for change. And Jesus, we just thank you so much for giving yourself up for us. And we love you. Amen. All right, so our primary text this morning is going to be the passage in Colossians that Mackenzie read. Colossians 1.18 through 23. I want to just reread again real quick. Verse 18. It says that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. The supremacy of Christ. The Colossians, just as a little bit of background, a church in Colossae that Paul writes this letter to, these believers in Colossae, and they were struggling to accept that Jesus alone, only Jesus, would be enough to satisfy their spiritual longings and desires. They felt like they needed to add something else in order to find spiritual satisfaction and joy. But, I mean, when we read this passage, right, Paul points so exclusively, doesn't he, to the total supremacy of Jesus in all things. Paul leaves absolutely no room in the heart of the Colossian believers for other ways to find peace with God or to practice the presence of God than by Jesus alone. Paul's saying that he's the eternal one. He's the firstborn among all things. He is the first to be resurrected, never to die again. And so 
we're getting right into it this morning. I, 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 as I prepared this message, I just asked the Spirit, show me, where do, we, where do we fail to believe this in our lives, the supremacy of Jesus? And I wonder what things we add, we feel we need to add in order to find spiritual satisfaction, to believe that we're okay with God. I suspect that if you're a seasoned churchgoer like me, you would say, of course I believe in the supremacy of Jesus in all things. But theology, anything about God that we believe, theology is not actually fully understood until it is practiced. Theology is not understood until it is practiced. So I think the way, at least in our society, in our day, and what's prevalent just as much in the church as well outside the church, the way that we add to our salvation, to what Jesus has given us, to Jesus alone, is that we hang on to shame and guilt. And this is just written everywhere in our culture. Shame says, I am bad. Guilt says, I've done something bad. Often, when we live in ways that are counter to Jesus, we think it's okay to sit in our shame before resuming relationship with him. In fact, if we're honest, we probably think we need to do it. We have to do it. It's part of how we know Jesus will be willing to accept us and welcome us back into relationship with him when we make mistakes or we feel guilty or shameful. And so we kind of hang on to it for a little bit before we're willing to say, okay, I think he's ready to receive me again. Parents hang on to their shame because a child gone wayward hurts too deeply. You must be responsible, you think to yourself. I, I must be responsible and, and take on some of this guilt that Jesus, I know cognitively Jesus bears the, the, the guilt and the shame that I feel, but I have to bear it too. I can't handle the pain of them leaving and not going in the way that I hope they would. Ultimately, all of our internal struggles, the caverns of our hearts that ache, the anxiety the shame, it all comes down to the supremacy of Jesus. If he is who he says he is, then he does not need or want our shame offerings, our guilt offerings. He doesn't need you to sit in your shame in order to smile upon you, to love you and accept you. He's experienced more shame than we can possibly imagine. Broken, beaten, bloodied, naked on a cross. Shame? He knows shame. He's experienced and taken on all of our guilt. All of it. Not just some. Every, every part of every guilt God has taken on himself for us. That we wouldn't have to bear any of it on the cross. We've got to stop manufacturing qualifiers for his love, for his mercy, and his grace. Or all we're going to do is spend our lives thinking that walking with Jesus is about sin management and behavior modification. And Jesus has a lot more for you than that. If you're not convinced, consider how everything in this passage points to him. Paul doesn't leave any room for any additional mediators between God and us. Christ is the be-all, end-all of mediators. Jesus is your mediator. He is your advocate. Look at what God says in verse 22. He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight 
without blemish, and free from accusation. Without blemish, no shame. Free from accusation, no guilt. That adjective, free from accusation, it's a judicial term. And it provides the courtroom overtone that's appropriate for the final judgment scene when believers will stand before God. And because of Christ's unblemished offering of himself as a sacrifice, believers can be presented unblemished and without accusation before God at the final judgment. We have been proven not guilty in the courtroom of God Almighty. In fact, not only are we not guilty, but we're given the goodness and righteousness and beauty of Jesus himself. God is the judge, and he looks at the courtroom scene as we stand there, and Jesus goes before us. And God says, what evidence do you have that this man or this woman is innocent and not guilty of what they seem to have done? Jesus hands the file to God to the judge, and it's pictures of nails through his, his hands and his wrists, his feet, his back, the lashes, the mockery, the shame, the guilt. God looks at it and he says, this is an appropriate sacrifice. Go free, son. Go free, daughter. One of my favorite Bible verses, Romans eight thirty nine. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, including shame and guilt, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? If you won't let Jesus be supreme in all things, you will spend your life riddled with anxiety and restricted to only being able to focus on your own issues. You have to let Jesus be Jesus and accept that it's not how good you are, how well you perform, how much Bible you know, how often you attend church, how much you pray, how good your marriage is, how much success you experience, how clean your reputation is, how well people think of you, how well behaved your children are. None of that makes you right with God. It is Jesus alone. The end. His life, his death, his resurrection is enough today, tomorrow, and every day after for you. Jesus plus anything ruins everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. N.T. Wright, Christian scholar, says this. Made for spirituality, we wallow in introspection. Made for joy, we settle for pleasure. Made for justice, we clamor for vengeance. Made for relationship, we insist on our own way. Made for beauty, we are satisfied with sentiment. But new creation has already begun. The sun has begun to rise. Christians are called to leave behind in the tomb of Jesus Christ, all that belongs to brokenness and incompleteness of this present world. That, quite simply, is what it means to be a Christian. To follow Jesus Christ into the new world, God's new world, which he has thrown wide open for us. Leave your shame and your guilt in the tomb. 
Now, verse 20. Peace through his blood. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Peace through bloodshed. The grim reference to Christ's blood and cross brings us down from the lofty heights of his preeminence and fullness to the squalid depths of human pain and suffering. These two words, blood and cross, are combined to express cost and violence. Blood refers to death by violence. The cross refers to humility and shame. The head of the church was the one who was shamefully crucified. These last lines affirm, however, that God's ultimate purpose is not to judge and to destroy, but to reconcile and to renew, to make peace. This is good news. Jesus bled on a Roman cross so that you and I could know renewal. It is only in his weakness, in his willingness, to be utterly powerless that he was made totally powerful. So powerful that he's able to reconcile everything to himself. What strange irony. It is his willingness to give up his deserved supremacy to become low and weak that then he is given total supremacy. So supreme that he can renew any heart any community, any neighborhood, any city, the world. Here in that one little line, peace through his blood, we see the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. You would expect a crucified and resurrected man to come back and love his enemies? To renew them? I don't think so. I'd want some revenge. To judge and wipe out those people who murdered him. To seek that revenge. Not so with King Jesus. He still gets the final word. Yes, he does. But it's a word of forgiveness. Mercy. Grace. Peace. Jesus is the incarnate wisdom of God. Wisdom took on flesh. And he walked among us. And we know this because it says that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. So what does real wisdom look like? It looks like radically changing the world, not by force or might, but by weakness and humility. Wisdom personified came down from heaven and walked among us to show us how to live. He turned this world on its head. The kingdom of God has a completely different ethic and way of living. Think about our world's ethic towards power, for example. Do we often fight for power, to keep it, to hold on to it, to have it? Do we undercut others, even go to war for it, talk badly, backstab? All of those things are the ethic of our world as far as power is concerned. But even though we're operating under our own ethics and values, we're still living in God's created world, which means it often doesn't bode well for us when we live under our own rule and values instead of God's. We're like a group of kids on a beach walking along. They stumble upon a really large sandcastle, 
One of them runs up to the top, says, I'm king of the castle. Obviously, immediately, all the other kids try to come up and start pushing them off and down and all that. And there's fighting and pushing and shoving and I'm the king, I'm the king, and your kingship only lasts as long as the last kids, a few seconds at best. And over time, the game has to end. Not because they want it to, but because all of the fighting, the pushing, the grasping to be on top has slowly destroyed the castle to where it's leveled out completely. Now they all stand on the same playing field again. That's because God designed the, the universe in a very particular way, where the more we struggle to ascend at any cost for power and authority, the more likely we'll end up in ruin. It doesn't always happen, but it's often the case. And this is in dramatic contrast, isn't it, to the way of Jesus and his power. Christ wins his victory and power and is proclaimed king when he is lifted up on a Roman cross. That's how he gains his power, through bloodshed. Peace through his blood. Tim Keller, author of Reason for God, says this. This pattern of the cross means that the world's glorification of power, might, and status is exposed and defeated. On the cross, Christ wins through losing, triumphs through defeat, achieves power through weakness and service, comes to wealth by giving it all away. Jesus Christ turns the values of this world upside down. I want to talk for a moment about the resurrection in particular. What happened during the resurrection? I wonder how many of you are like me when you've read through the story of the fall in Genesis 3. The deceiver Satan comes to Eve. Did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Of course, that's not what God actually said. But as you're reading the story, you're thinking, come on, Eve, don't, don't, don't give in, don't do it. You can do this, be strong. Well, we can eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say that we can't eat from that tree over there in the middle or we'll die. The deceiver causing her to question what God said, looks at her and says, you will not certainly die. God is just holding out on you because he knows that if you eat of it, you'll become like him. He doesn't want you to become like him. He wants to keep that to himself. And thus she begins to question God's goodness. She looks over now at that tree. She hasn't really ever gazed upon it closely, but it draws her to it. She walks over. The fruit looks good. And she and Adam have some. Every time I read it, I think, you've got to be kidding me. Come on. There's no way I would have been so easily swayed. It's very arrogant. But that's, being honest, that's what I think. But of course, here's the reality. We are much more alike than we think we are to our first parents, Adam and Eve. In fact, the story of the resurrection is a lot like the first three chapters in Genesis. In the Garden of Eden, God had just completed creating all things, saying that they were good. And when he finishes his most satisfying creation, his masterpiece, the Imago Dei, man and woman, the full image of God, he says, very good. 
And then we get the fall of mankind at the hands of the deceiver who convinced us it'd be better to be little gods than to serve the God. And thus begins this downward spiral of the effects of the evil human heart on the world. Humanity quickly grows so wicked that God decides to kind of hit the restart button. And it only takes a couple of chapters for the wickedness of that one family that he preserves for their wickedness to show up in the story. Fast forward to the life and ministry of Jesus and we begin to see God doing something again. What's he doing? He's recreating the world in the death, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But this time he hones in not so much on creating matter and material, but on our relationships. He's recreating the way we relate to one another, our value systems, our priorities. He spent time with prostitutes, with the lowly. He dined with tax collectors. He touched and healed lepers, gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf. He gave unprecedented dignity to women. Then Jesus goes on to reveal the full depth of our depravity and the brokenness that we experience on the cross. And at the same time, he's revealing the full potential of a life lived in service to the Father on that same cross. He's recreating the world by reordering our values, ethics, and priorities. And there's another tree, right, in that story. The tree of the cross, the tree that he hung on, that would begin to reverse the very effects of sin and death that were brought about by that first tree Adam and Eve ate from. And the moment that Jesus comes out of the tomb, when he bodily rises from the dead, that is the moment that he finishes creating his second masterpiece, the death of death. And therefore, the hope of new life on offer for you and for me, his first masterpiece. Do you see it? It's Genesis all over again. It's the new beginning in the middle of the mess. And here we are, you and me, called about to bring this, this new kingdom, this, this new garden of Eden known as the kingdom of God. And here we walk enjoying the fruit of this kingdom of sacrificing for one another and, and loving and bearing burdens and caring for the sick and the marginalized. And, and then the deceiver comes along to us in this garden. Did Jesus really have to be raised from the dead for you to find hope? We say, we believe in his life, death, and resurrection. You think a dead man actually came back to life? I think so. But you don't actually have to believe that to receive his life, do you? And thus we trust the deceit of the father of lies over our father in heaven. I don't want you to raise your hand, but I sincerely want you to ask yourself, 
Do I actually believe that Jesus Christ came back to life after being dead for three days? And here's what I want to contend. The reason this is so important. Everything about what Jesus said, everything about what he did, everything about his way of life, everything in the scriptures, the power of Christianity depends on the answer to that question. Is he alive or is he dead? And as I prepared this message, I felt God telling me, it's not just the known obvious skeptic who would struggle to believe this, but many of us in this room struggle with the reality of the resurrection. And the reason that it matters is because if Jesus didn't actually defeat death and overcome the powers of sin and darkness, then what hope do you and I have in breaking free from the patterns of sin and brokenness in our lives? What hope do we have for new life? What hope do we have in finding justice for the oppressed in this world if he's still in the tomb? He may have said good things, modeled self-giving love and sacrifice, but he certainly can't hold evil and wicked people accountable. He can't hold anybody accountable if he's still dead. Why should I have any hope that this planet, the universe, will one day be restored and renewed instead of eventually just being swallowed up by the sun? What hope do I have to believe any of the things that Jesus said are true if the resurrection is a farce? Why take any of Jesus' words more seriously than any other religious leader? Jesus' life and words, if he's dead, are no better than Gandhi or Buddha or Muhammad. What power do I have to overcome the aches and pains in my soul that I don't like to talk about with other people if he's not alive. If the resurrection is merely a spiritual reality, that he spiritually rose from the dead, not physically, I'm left with no real tangible hope for any of these things. Tim Keller again says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like what he said, but on whether or not he's dead. That's what matters. So often, we get hung up on the problem of evil, on theologies and debates that we allow to overshadow the most important question that matters, the the only question that matters on whether or not we're going to take this thing called Christianity seriously, is he alive? If he's dead, then the problem of evil is no longer a problem. Imagine there's no heaven, no hell below us, above us, only sky. Above us, above Auschwitz, only sky. Imagine. Problem of evil. It doesn't matter if he's dead. No cosmic Christ to judge the deeds of the wicked and to hold them accountable so that the oppressed would find justice and mercy and grace. But if he is really alive, then any repulsion you feel towards fill-in-the-blank theology, fill-in-the-blank secondary issue is just that. It's secondary now. And so now I just want to Spend a few minutes 
giving some, I think, helpful answers to questions about the resurrection. And I've adopted much of this section from Keller on uh, The Reason for God. I highly recommend that book to, to anybody. So the defense of the resurrection. First, there's female witnesses. The social status of women during this time that the resurrection happened was so unfathomably low, sadly, that to have in your account of what happened during the resurrection a woman's voice be what's supposed to be held up in court was actually silly and laughable. It would be like saying, my dog told me the sky is purple and believing him. It's sad, but that's what it was like. Why, if it's a hoax, would women be the first to see the empty tomb and to meet Jesus? It just doesn't make sense. The only possible explanation for why women were depicted as meeting Jesus first is if they really had. Secondly, the empty tomb and sightings. If there had been only an empty tomb and no sightings, no one would have concluded it was a resurrection. They would have assumed that the body had just been stolen. Yet if there had only been eyewitnesses sightings of Jesus and no empty tomb, no one would have concluded it was a resurrection either because people's accounts of seeing departed loved ones happened all the time. Only if the two factors, an empty tomb, seeing Jesus, are true together, would anyone conclude that Jesus was raised from the dead? Third, Dying for the faith, Blaise Pascal says, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. If you're willing to die for what you believe, I'm going to listen. Something's going on. You're either extremely delusional, or maybe, just maybe, what you're saying happened really happened. Virtually all of the early Christians, apostles, disciples, Christian leaders, died for their faith in horrible ways. And it was very difficult, it's very difficult to believe that this kind of powerful, self-giving sacrifice is a result of a hoax, of a cover-up. Finally, other messiahs. In the first century, there were many other messianic movements whose would-be messiahs were also killed. However, in not one single case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised from the dead. They knew better. Resurrection was not a private event. Jewish revolutionaries whose leader had been executed by the authorities and who managed to escape arrest themselves had two options— Give up the revolution or find another leader. Claiming that the original leader was alive again was simply not an option, unless, of course, he actually was. If the best and only legitimate explanation for the explosive growth of Christianity, of followers of Jesus and the early church, as well as the sacrifice of its adherents, is that Jesus really did rise from the dead then it changes everything. There's an excellent documentary called Collision that came out probably 10, 12 years ago 
where uh, an atheist and a theist uh, travel around together debating some, uh, well, the, the issue was, is Christianity good for the world? You can guess whose side each was on. Christopher Hitchens, a uh, prolific author, passed away not too long ago, was the, th- the atheist, and this is one of the things he says. If you say you win the argument because you were once dead and now you're alive, I will look at you slightly narrowly. If you were on the bus next to someone who said, I used to be a dead person, but I'm alive now, you would move toward them or away from them. I think we all know what we would do. Doug Wilson, the theist, responds, The stranger on the bus is a stranger on the bus. However, if you traveled around with a guy for three years, he told you he's going to come back from the dead, and he did. I hope that you would look at him more than slightly squinty-eyed. Here's the verdict, I think. Nothing in history can be proven the way we can prove something in a laboratory. It's just not possible. However, the resurrection of Jesus is a historical fact much more fully attested to than most other events of ancient history that we often take for granted. Every effort to account for the birth of the church apart from Jesus' resurrection flies in the face of what we know about first century history and culture. If you don't short-circuit the process with the philosophical bias against the possibility of miracle, the resurrection of Jesus has the most evidence for it. Amen? It's good news. So, in conclusion, the resurrection of Jesus is our hope for new life. Cosmic reconciliation The renewal of all things really is actually possible. God is not only doing things in our own hearts, but he's going to restore all of creation that groans. His death and bodily resurrection, as I said earlier, marks the moment that God began to recreate and rework the brokenness of our world. And he does that through, today, the power of the Holy Spirit. This is when and where God begins to turn all sad things untrue. It is what character after character throughout the Old Testament longed for and points towards. The renewal of all things made possible by the reigning Messiah. A long quote, bear with me. Two-parter. The message of the resurrection is that this world matters the material world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means Jesus Christ is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it is only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus Christ is truly raised from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world, news which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming our hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things, and that we will work and plan with all of our energy of God to implement victory of Jesus over them all. Take away Easter, 
And Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring problems in the material world. Take away Freud, take away Easter, and Freud was probably right to say Christianity is wish fulfillment. Take it away, and Nietzsche was probably right to say it's for wimps. Like I mentioned earlier, I felt as I prepared the spirit press on me that there are some who are struggling deeply to believe that the resurrection is real and it is holding them back from experiencing new life in Jesus. We love to distract ourselves with Bible studies and community and our work and play because when we've tried to really consider the validity of our faith, to answer that question, did he rise, it just feels too uncomfortable. But could it be, could it be that he did? Could it be that the man Jesus Christ really did lay death in his grave? Because if he did, it changes everything. I believe that God wants to set us free from the chains that have shackled us too long. Even some of us who've been in church for a long time are struggling to believe that the power of the cross and resurrection is great enough to change those parts of you that you just feel so stuck in, that you can't get out of, patterns of unhealth, ways of thinking, practices that you don't like and you know aren't good for you, but you just don't feel like you can do it. Yes, you can, through the power of Jesus Christ. I promise you, you can. He wants to do it. He can do it. Not in your own strength, not Jesus plus some other stuff to help me do it. Jesus alone, through the power of community, can help each of us become more like him. He wants all of you. And some of you are afraid to invite others into your pain, into your hurt, into your questions. And I just want to submit that you don't have a trust issue with other people. You have a trust issue with God, and it's because you don't want to accept that your Father in heaven will really love you and receive you as you are. And he does. I promise you, he does. He loves you. He is for you. He is strong enough to handle the pain and the struggles and the sadness that you feel. He knows pain. He went to the cross. He knows shame. He took it all on himself and he overcame death so that you and I might, not, might have new life in him. The thesis statement of Paul in Colossians is in the final two verses there. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to go to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. The Spirit of God that powerfully raised Christ from the dead now lives in those who call him Savior. The temple curtain was torn in two when he died because God had received a sacrifice on behalf of humanity who was fully and finally worthy. The temple curtain veiled the presence of God. 
It kept us and God apart. We couldn't be near him in that way. Only a priest once a year got to go into that place to offer sacrifices. Not anymore. The, the, the curtain is torn in two. His presence now goes out into each of us. God's very presence in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. The same presence that raised Christ from the dead. I wonder, have you tasted the life, the new life on, off, on offer in the risen Jesus? As the worship team comes back up for a few more songs, we get to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus this morning through the waters of baptism. This is for us what it's all about. Baptism isn't what saves you, but it is what, what we do in community to show that we're committing to apprenticing Jesus all of our days. And, and the folks that get baptized are not the only ones making a commitment, right? You and I are committing to them to walk with them as they learn to bear burdens, to practice the way of Jesus, to live into his life, into their calling in this life. And so I'm excited to to see folks get baptized this morning. If you've got little ones, um, are they in here right now? They're coming. Uh, little ones, ages kindergarten to fifth grade, if you dropped them off in the, in the kids' ministry earlier, they're going to be coming in here just a second. Actually, um, toddlers too. Toddlers as well. Okay, everybody. We want to invite you to go ahead, if you have little ones, to go to the back. Here they come. Grab them now. Go ahead and stand up. <clears throat> if you got little ones, make space for parents to get out and grab them. Uh, the reason, part of the reason we're doing that is because Nastia Hoffman is going to be baptized this morning, and uh, we wanted her peers to be able to be a part of that. We think that's going to be pretty cool. So go ahead and grab them. I'm going to pray for us while we do that, okay? Father, we love you. Jesus, we thank you for the power of your spirit. God, we thank you for new life. There is hope in you. Because you bodily came out of that grave. You didn't stay in the tomb. And because of that, we get to leave those hurts and pains and brokenness in the tomb. It doesn't happen all at once, and we're going to get hurt again. It's not easy, Jesus. But through the power that raised you from the dead, we get to walk in community with one another as we learn to apprentice you, Jesus, our master. With our eyes still closed so that we don't feel weird or embarrassed, I want to invite you and ask you, is God moving in your heart? Do you feel him calling you to pray or even to be baptized this morning? If he is, there's leaders in the back who are gladly ready to, to chat with you. We've got change of clothes for you if you're interested in being baptized. I, I, I want to pray that God would give you the courage to do that. Jesus, would you help us now to be brave? 
to listen to what your spirit is doing. Help us, God, to, to obey the calling that you've put in us. It's not easy, it's scary, it feels awkward, but new life is worth it. Jesus, I pray that you would give courage to those of us who feel weak right now and afraid. God, I ask that you would help us to pray with one another, that you would bless our time as we sing a couple of more songs and get to participate in the picture of new life that is baptism, Jesus. We just thank you and rejoice with those who will do that this morning and and we ask again that you would give us courage and boldness, Lord. We love you. Amen. We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.